your MacArthur Genius grantee? Do you get to say you're a genius forever? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Keep asking this back here. Um, and you founded the Equal Justice Initiative, which works on uh, legal representation of the indigent. And you, have a, and you have a new book out called Just Mercy. Yeah. Um, and in this new book, um, you focus on the story of Walter McMillan, who was yes. one of was he your first client or one of your one of your first clients? Yeah, no, I'd been practicing for three or four years before I took on his case, but it's one of the first um, cases uh, in Alabama that we took on. And and why did in the book did you focus on his case? Say that one more time, I'm sorry. Oh, why in your book did you decide to uh, focus on Walter's case? Well, you know, there there were a lot of things about that case that I thought really um, made the point that we have become pretty disconnected in our thinking about criminal justice and punishment. Um, uh, the, the, the first thing was that, I mean, he was just one of um, a bunch of clients that I took on in the 80s who uh, was on death row and couldn't find a lawyer. Um, what I found especially compelling about his case was just the extraordinary effort they made to get him uh, convicted. They actually put him on death row for 15 months before he ever went to trial. It was the only case I'd ever worked on where the client actually spent 15 months awaiting trial on death row. And that meant, of course, that the newspapers were filing things like uh, we're writing articles like Death Row Defendant Walter McMillan will be arraigned and Death Row Defendant Walter McMillan has been thought of these pretrial pleadings. The second thing that made me want to focus on the case was the fact that he was so clearly innocent. Uh, he was wrongly uh, accused, and at the time the crime took place, he was um, 11 miles away with his family raising money for his sister's church. And they were all there with him and absolutely knew he was innocent because they were there with him. <laughs> and, you know, when I got involved in the case, unlike other cases, there was this big effort to keep me from taking the case. They, um, the judge called me. The judge's name is Robert E. Lee Key. And he called and said, I don't want you taking this case and really tried to dissuade me from doing the case. Um, but the main reason I wanted to run him out of the case um, was that the case takes place, the crime takes place in Monroeville, Alabama, which is the place where Harper Lee grew up and wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. And the irony of this community that loves that story, that embraces that story, that romanticizes that story, uh, and yet was completely indifferent to the plight of um, an innocent African-American man being wrongly prosecuted and convicted, uh, I just thought revealed this disconnect that we have in our society around these issues. And I just thought it would be a, uh, an interesting case to talk about. He was ultimately exonerated, but I also wanted to talk about the impact and the consequences of what happens when we wrongly condemn and we wrongly try to execute a person uh, day after day, week after week, year after year. I think we have oversimplified how freedom uh, is an entirely adequate remedy. And I wanted to write about that as well. Right, and in the recent, I mean, I feel like every day we read more about people who've been exonerated, um, especially now with DNA testing. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so I think that that's, uh, you know, real. And much mostly people being exonerated are 
people on death row, which I always start to question how many people are serving, you know, five-year sentences, 10-year sentences, 20-year sentences who are also innocent. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's right. No, I'm persuaded we've never had more uh, innocent people wrongly convicted in, in American jails or prisons than we have today, and that's a function of just the numbers of people sent to jails and prisons, but it's also a function of um, uh, the way in which we've not really taken seriously this requirement to be reliable and uh, and precise. Um, and I mean, one thing that you're both focuses on in m- much of your work, of course, is that, um, you know, Equal Justice Initiative is, is based out of Alabama. Mm-hmm. This story is in the South. Um, and much of your work is very much focused on the role of race and class. Um, I guess, in, especially in terms of focusing on, you know, the McMillan case in your book, do you do you think that the issue of racism is more of an issue in the South because of its closer connection to a history of slavery? Um, or, I, I, I assume you think this, but uh, I guess it would be, what do you think that other states, non-Southern states, can learn from reading about these cases that happen in the deep south. Yeah, well, I, I think, um, I think first of all, um, you know, I write a lot about uh, children prosecuted as adults, and the cases that I focus on are all over the country. I write about um, young people in California. Antonio Nunez is one of the clients who is from Los Angeles, uh, in mm-hmm. central L.A., and I write about clients in Philadelphia, and in Florida and in the Midwest. And so in that respect, uh, the issues that they face and the presumption of guilt that black and brown children have to overcome is a national problem and not something particular to the uh, Deep South. Uh, On the other hand, I do think that the legacy of racial inequality and injustice has a particular intensity in the states of the Old South where slavery was dominant uh, where lynching was dominant, where Jim Crow and segregation uh, created racial hierarchy that has never really been addressed. Um, I mean, we just have never kind of confronted it. We haven't acknowledged it. We haven't told the truth about it. And so I do think that there are issues um, that are particularly intense in the South that uh, have to be addressed when we talk about racial inequality. But I certainly think the legacy of racial injustice is a national legacy, and you can see evidence of it in virtually every community in this country. Right. It was actually just the case yesterday in California. Another um, uh, young, another juvenile with LWAP, actually. The California court just confirmed an LWAP sentence for a juvenile, even under the new Supreme Court law. Yeah. (laughs) I guess we'll see see what happens with that. Um, Right. So, okay, so I guess my last question for you is what, given all this, what do you think people should do to promote a more equal justice system? People, I guess like different people have thrown out different ideas, but in your mind, what, what's the one or two things people should focus on? Well, I think we have to demand more responsiveness from our system of, uh, from our politicians. I mean, you know, we got into this mess because of politics of fear and anger created a culture where every politician was competing with each other to be tough on crime. And we've got to demand more. I think we should insist that we stop spending $80 billion a year to keep people in jails or prisons. 
I'm encouraged by some of the ballot initiatives uh, in California that have resulted in reforms. But how tragic that we have elected officials who do not have the courage or the willingness to deconstruct these uh, excessive, punitive, mandatory laws that have created so much cost and hardship. And so I do think that there has to be a political component where we expect more, demand more from elected officials. Um, the second thing is that I just think we have to be more willing to acknowledge our mistakes, uh, less arrogant about our system, uh, because with humility comes the opportunity to talk about reforms and remedies that won't happen as long as we insist that we just have this great system that uh, works, you know, correctly all the time. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I think I took my five minutes and then some. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking to you.